No matter what organization you lead, finances are paramount for your success. And church finances aren't any different. Poorly managed church finances can hurt a pastor's ability to lead church members and reach the local community. After all, very little will wreck the movement of God more than weak financial policies and workflows. Thankfully, it's much easier to make changes now, before your church is in the headlines, than to try to reestablish those relationships after they've been torpedoed by a costly financial misstep. And that's where our friends at Belay can help. Belay, a modern church staffing organization with fractional U.S.-based accounting and virtual assistant services, has helped busy church leaders do just that for more than a decade. To help you figure out where to start, Belay is offering its resource, Four Costly Financial Mistakes for Churches, to our listeners for free to help you identify the four biggest things we can see wreck churches when it comes to their finances and what you can do to avoid them. Just text RUSTY, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to get back to growing your church with Belay. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Leading Simple. I am so glad to have you with us today. I'm your host, Rusty George, and I want to thank our friends at Belay Solutions uh, for sponsoring our podcast this month as they did last month. Uh, if you need help with uh, just virtual assistance, uh, managing resources, a lot of back-end stuff for your offices, boy, this is your team. Uh, we have used Belay, and we continue to be big fans of what it is that they do. So make sure you check them out at Belay Solutions. Today, we get to have a really interesting conversation about a new friend who wrote a book uh, and simply asked this question, should we keep asking God for forgiveness? Now, I know if you're like me, most of your prayer life growing up, it was every night on your knees, by your bed, asking God for forgiveness, and you would try to come up with the things that you did wrong during the day. Because you feared if you didn't confess those things before you passed away or before you went to sleep, and if you didn't wake up, like the old adage says, you know, uh, if I die before I wake, um, you you might not uh, see Jesus after that. And I know as I got older and I had more things to confess, it took a little longer, or maybe I felt like I got to wait a few days before I uh, have earned the right to even ask for forgiveness. Well, Ben Conley has written a book that tells us, you know what, I think we should probably stop asking for forgiveness. And I'm going to drill down as to why that is. Maybe this is a question you have, maybe a friend has, but we encourage you to share this with somebody else as well. So here is my conversation with Ben Conley as he tries to make simple for us the whole idea of asking for forgiveness. Ben Conley, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, for our listeners that don't know you, give us the uh, the nutshell story of who you are. Ben, bio in a nutshell. Okay. Well, gosh, that's a big <laughs> that's a big endeavor. Um, but thank you for having me, first of all. Um, and yeah, I think the the most defining few minute version is that uh, I grew up in Texas. Have been in Texas my whole life. Frankly, not have al- have not always wanted to stay in Texas, but God keeps keeping us here. Um, and as a strangely stereotypical Texas story, I grew up in a very religious household um, and was even hired as a youth pastor at age 18. And I think I was 20 before I knew Jesus. Um, oh. And so that was, 
not it's not the direction most most advisors would uh, suggest <laughs> um not the order of events but uh but i think god used ministry to save me now why i i love that description and i i totally get it and i know exactly what you mean but tell our listeners exactly what you mean what do you mean you didn't know jesus didn't know Jesus. Uh, well, I knew all about Jesus. Um, I think I could tell you a lot of facts. I could recite a lot of Bible stories. We were at church very often. Um, you know, my, my parents were church leaders. I was a, a leader in various youth groups and I preached at our church's senior Sunday, my senior year of high school. <laughs> and, you know, did, did all the right things, led a good kind of moral high school life. Um, while I was a, uh, youth pastor my first couple of years of college. I lived a somewhat moral life while also doing things on campus that I then went and preached at my kids not to do. So yeah. I've, I've, I've been freed of shame. There's still some regret of those couple of years of hypocrisy, but then realized uh, midway through my university years, man, if, if Jesus is real, he should matter to everything. He should change all of life. Mm. Um, and that really became a moment that that a lot of life did change for me. So your life gets radically transformed by Jesus. And then what does that do to your life? Tell us about your ministry journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, it really set me on a ministry journey. Um, I was already, you know, like I mentioned, already in, in youth ministry. Um, but I'd, I'd just kind of done that. I mean, in full frankness, because uh, it paid better than retail. So I was the maybe only guy in history to get into ministry for the money. <laughs> and that's only true because I was 18 years old and it was better than working at the mall. Um, but but I bounced around from major to major my first couple of years of college and really couldn't find purpose or direction and very quickly uh, wrapped up in kind of the, if Jesus is real, he should matter to all of life realization was, oh man, like, what I love doing most is talking to these student students at the time, high school and middle school students about Jesus. And, and so it really was, you know, I finished a communications degree and um, moved to move back to, to Dallas for seminary and just kind of started very quickly down kind of the ministry path. Um, mm -hmm. And ended up working at a, what was called a church plant. I had no idea what church planting was. Uh, and since then I've gotten to plant a few different churches. Um, wow. And then by God's grace, I get to train church planters and train existing churches on some everyday ministry and everyday discipleship uh, through an organization called the Equipping Group. So that's kind of where what we get to do. Wow. Well, church planting is a huge heart of ours here at our church and through our podcast. We interview a lot of church planters. So I'd love to talk to you about that sometime, but uh, today we're gonna, we're going to focus on your book, which I love the title of this: "Reading the Bible, Missing the Gospel." Is this your first book you've ever written? No, this is uh, the third book that I've gotten to write with Great. Moody Publishers. All three of them are with Moody, and then I've gotten to write a few kind of workbooks or supplements to a couple of friends' regular books. So it's the the, the third book book that I've gotten to do. Do you like writing? Um, I like writing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I like writing at the start of writing projects. Um, oh yeah, um, and I I love to to see the finished product. But there's there's days that that it feels like writing just is is a helpful balm and it just flows and that kind of stuff. And then there's a few days at a time where it's just like, man, I have this idea in my head and why can't it come out on paper? Um, exactly. So. I heard Lucado say one time. Uh, I like, I don't like writing. I like having written. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I totally, uh, I totally feel that statement because it's like you said, when you get the concept, you're like, oh, this could be cool. And then you get deep into it and you're like, man, this is laborious. But there are those golden moments where it's just flowing and it feels like, boy, I could do this forever. So yeah, this, uh, this, this concept is great. So I want you to explain to our listeners a little bit as to what you're trying to say in this book and why you felt you needed to say it. Yeah. Um, so two questions there. What, what, what are we trying to say? Um, the first is echoing what Jesus said to some religious leaders. Uh, it's in John chapter five, um, where he looks at them and says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is the scriptures that bear witness to me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's because of some of the kind of religious but not Christian background that I really resonate with that verse, those couple of verses. Um, but essentially, what Jesus is saying to 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 folks whose entire jobs it was was to study the Bible, like these are the religious leaders of his days, they were to study and interpret and hear and know God. And what he says is, even though you go to the scriptures, you don't actually know God. Um, you've made an idol out of the words. You made an idol out of the law, and yet the law isn't your salvation. Um, the words of the scriptures themselves don't save you. And even in saying that, like, ah, it feels almost heretical to say like the Bible doesn't save you. We, we put so much value, rightly, put so much value on the Bible. But I think, I wonder if Jesus would look at us today and go, you, you look to the Bible to find life, but you're going to end up empty because true life is only found in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's, that's the heart of the message is going, I wonder how much we, even very well-intentioned teachers and readers of the Bible and everyday Christians and pastors, how much do we go to the Bible and yet do we miss the actual source of life, even as we're valuing the actual words, which I believe are God's words, but, but they point to the true source of life. Um, and so that's the message. And I think that's some of why I wrote it is because I, I feel like for myself and for many that I know, um, we're taught to preach the word, to go to the word, to look at the Bible. But if, if we miss that the Bible is just a windshield pointing to a far greater view, uh, then in a sense, we even miss the point of why God's given us his written words. That's so well said. I, I come from the Midwest as well. Uh, I grew up in Kansas, went to school in Missouri. Okay. Uh, we pride ourselves in Bible knowledge, and uh, I'm from a non-denominational background, but we've, we've often been accused of feeling like our Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, mm-hmm. where uh, there's not a lot of spirited uh, part of our beliefs, but we sure do memorize words. And I think you're right. I mean, I went to Bible college with a lot of people that knew the right answers, but we're not like Jesus at all. It almost feels weird to say that, right? Like we're missing the point in reading the Bible. Yeah, they, I mean, there's a pendulum swing we have to be really careful of. Right. And I, this was maybe my biggest prayer as I wrote the book is, as you know, I pray for readers. I pray for my own discernment and nuancing sentences correctly and then no matter how nuanced I feel like they are, of course, editors tell me they need to be differently nuanced because um, that's how <laughs> writing works. Right. Um, but by the end, that was the biggest thing we were watching for is going, this is not a book that is anti-Bible by any means. Um, it's rather my hope is that that it would draw people into 
maybe a right view or some some renewed lenses that we've just lost because of tradition or lost because of kind of our common Christian practices um, that would return us to actually a higher view of the scriptures, but even a higher view of the Jesus that the scriptures point to. How did we get to this? You know, I mean, how did, because um, it's so interesting that you quote that verse because obviously Jesus' audience, not his primary audience, but certainly the Pharisees, mm -hmm. they had somehow drifted into this and they didn't even have what we refer to as the Bible. They had the scrolls from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. But how did we get to this point where we should know better? How suddenly do we become so religious about our Bible reading and make that our God? Yeah, you say suddenly, and I'm I'm curious. I think for a lot of us in our generation, um, we've we've inherited a lot of years of of tradition, and so I I, right. I don't know. I wonder how suddenly it was. I even think of, you know, if if Satan is a deceiver, uh, then could there be some spiritual level to which you know he's mm. blinded our eyes over different years and that kind of stuff. And and if so, deceit is never over, right? It's never, hey, you should you should stop reading your Bible. Oh, okay. Sounds good. You know, that's, that's not how that works. Um, it's so much more subtle and right. And, and kind of drip, drip, drip over time. Um, but, I, but I think that one, one symptom as it were, um, is simply that we, we go to the Bible looking for something that makes it about me. Hmm. Um, we go to the Bible going, how can I know more? about God? How can I feel better about myself? How can I feel holier? What are some rules that then I can try to follow? Um, and, and, and it just goes against the core of the Christian message, which is, it's not about you. Like you can't know more. You can't know enough about God to make God love you more. You can't feel any better about yourself to the point where X, Y, Z happens to where you're not going to sin anymore. You can't, even if you do know the rules, at least for me, as I think about this, we can't follow the rules all the time. And so then we're left either pretending and putting on this good religious facade or just feeling guilt and shame of going, I can't do it. I can't measure up. Hmm. And so I think that the bottom line is that when we go to the Bible, hoping to find something for me, or we make the Bible all about me, how can it serve me? How can it make me smarter, me feel better? I, I think we've just missed the whole point of God's message. Because again, the message of Christianity is you can't, Yeah. but Jesus can, and Jesus did. Yeah. It is interesting that somehow, I mean, that's the greatest message we have, and that often gets missed. I just, I just had lunch with a church planner, and he's telling me about having a conversation with a, a woman in his church. And she's just beginning to get the concept of grace. Mm. And about the moment she gets it, the light bulb goes off above her head and she says, well, goodness, you should tell everybody about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's kind of what yeah. we're trying to do, you know, but we, uh, right. yeah. we, uh, <laughs> we get mixed up in a lot of other things. Uh, you talk a little bit about the difference between a Christian way to read the Bible and an unchristian way to read the Bible. Help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, and I think what we've just been talking about is largely the unchristian way to read the Bible. If if we go to it saying, okay, I'm the main character and the Bible exists to serve me, um, then we just have a we have a wrong lens. We have a wrong starting point, and even the way we kind of dissect or go to scriptures, we're just looking for something to make me feel better. Let's yep. let's have a verse to 
to give us some catharsis for the day or some nugget we've never seen before. And, and again, to, to avoid swinging the pendulum too far, like the Bible is full of theology. There are commands and, and we know this, um, but there's even a way, and I, I, I write this in the book, so I might get in trouble for saying this, but there's, there's a, there's a way to read or for us who teach and preach the Bible, there's a way to preach the Bible um, in a way that it could be read or preached in a mosque or synagogue. Mm. Um, that if Jesus is just a good example to follow, look, he was perfect. You should be more like him. And that's frankly like the way that a lot of Christians read or preach the Bible. Oh, I should be more like Jesus. Here's something that God told me to do. I should try to do that. Um, our Muslim and Jewish cousins see Jesus as a great prophet and example to follow. But what they miss is the fact that we can never be like him. And so again, religion would say, try, 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 and fail, 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 fail. Um, the core of the Christian message is Jesus was perfect. Yeah, but you can't be perfect. That's why we need the cross. Mm. That's why we need the resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, it's because he wasn't just an example to follow. He was an example to follow, to be clear, but he wasn't just an example to follow. He's also... The, the fulfillment of every promise and command and the redeemer of all brokenness and the one who alone can do all the things that we're called to do and never can do. And not only did he do them for us to follow, he did them on our behalf when we couldn't follow him. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Christian way to read the Bible is to really go, okay, how, how is God the main character, not myself? What does this tell us about who God is, what God does? Um, if we can accept that God is the main character of his own story, um, then, then we get to go, okay, what part does, do humans play in this? And I think what we find is even the, the best humans are still imperfect. The best humans are still fallible. The best humans are still finite. Mm. Um, and that's the best of humans. There's a lot of not best humans <laughs> laced throughout the scriptures. <laughs> um, and so whether by example or contrast or just, you know, they get 50% there, but Jesus is 100% there. I think the question for seeing humans in the scriptures is, is how, how do we find ourselves not as the main characters, but in, in need of the main character? Mm -hmm. How do we need God to be God? How do we need Jesus not just to be the example, but also the fulfillment of everything? Okay, so you're getting into what you refer to as the threefold remedy mm -hmm. that will change everything. Uh, <laughs> sp specify that for us because, man, as you're talking... I'm thinking about all the verses that we've all pulled out of context, whether it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me that's up in every high school football locker room. Right. Um, whether it's uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, mm -hmm. which uh, we forget that the plans he has for us are often involving a lot of suffering over hundreds of years as the context for that one. That's right. Um, and so many others down down the list. Yep. Um, you gave us these three steps. Uh, walk us through that again, because I think this is so crucial for us. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, this isn't like a, you know, three steps or, and you'll never read the Bible wrong again, money back guarantee. You know, it's, it's not, it's not that, it's not that simple, no silver bullets. Um, but if they are, you know, the whole kind of motif we use in the whole book is different lenses. Um, and so the, the first lens is to see the Bible as God's story. Um, that the, the very first words and the very last words about the scriptures and everything between Genesis one and revelation uh, are primarily telling the story of God. Um, they're not primarily telling the story of mankind, of me, 
um, they're, they're seeing over and over again, this is who God is. This is his character. This is his goodness. Um, this is the kind of work that God does. Um, and even some consistency of the work that God does. So, so that's kind of the first lens is to see the Bible as God's story. Um, and then, and only then do we rightly go, okay, where, where do humans fit within God's story? Um, and again, what we find is we're not the main character. We're at best supporting cast, Mm. um, but we're recipients of who God is and what God does. Mm -hmm. Um, and in our, again, in our best moments, we're subtle echoes or shadows of a much more glorious God in our worst of moments. There's a lot of contrast between who God is and what God does versus who we end up being and, and what we end up doing. Mm. Um, and if that's true for David or Jezebel or whomever else that's in the scriptures, then, then I think we're invited to ask an honest question of like, okay, well, who am I actually mm-hmm. like what, what character best defines me? Am I, Am I the hero? Am I the one who comes in and saves Israel? No, I'm probably the one who's scared and hiding behind a rock in need of a savior. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's a moment of honest introspection in the second question or second lens. If the first one is the Bible's about God, then the second lens is honestly, what role do humans play in God's story? Mm. And then it draws us to this third lens, which is to say, how does every verse, every command, every story in the scriptures point to Jesus as, yes, the example and the hero, but more than just a hero, because like my eight-year-old son really wants to be like Spider-Man, but as it turns (laughs) out, he'll never be able to be like Spider-Man, because only Spider-Man can be Spider-Man in a much more glorious and realistic way. Only Jesus can be Jesus. So how, how is Jesus not just the hero, but also the one who alone fulfills everything and does so on our behalf, even when we can't, he can, even when we didn't. Mm, That's really good. Three lenses. I love that. Okay. So you have some great uh, teasers here uh, on the book that probably gets you into a little bit of trouble, but I'm just going to read these and then I'm going to let you talk about them. Sure. Uh, You say, don't keep asking God for forgiveness. Do judge one another and you're not going to heaven for all eternity. Wow. Tell us more. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, so it's three different chapters for the record. So um, okay, here we go for the next hour and a half of me, of me talking through them all. Um, yeah, I think it, like in summary, and then I'll, maybe I'll dive into the, the forgiveness one. Um, I think what, we're, what I try to do in this book is draw out a lot of, okay, if, if those things are true, if what we just said is, hey, we miss the lens a lot, we read the Bible in a way that makes it about us and, and we miss God's original intent, then the core of what we miss is the everyday impact of the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. Um, like what we can miss in, in our earnest readings of the Bible is we can miss the gospel. Um, and so the, the idea of what is our relationship to asking God for forgiveness once we're followers of Jesus, once we've been saved, like that's been a, a wrestle for me for as long as I can remember, probably 20 years. Um, and it started, I remember when it started, it was in one sermon um, while I was in late college, early seminary. Um, and in the same sermon, the, the the pastor was very excitedly and exuberantly saying, in Jesus's death, your sin is removed as far as the East is from the West, which is a, a biblical promise. But then in the same sermon, he said, so every time you sin, you have to ask God for forgiveness. Hmm. 
and it just struck me like it feels like those two ideas contradict each other um and he again he was talking about folks who are already saved already followers of jesus mm-hmm. um and it just felt like those two things were at loggerheads with each other and so over time because i'm a huge nerd i ended up giving some time to kind of study and go okay what's what are we missing in this concept um and what i found was that before jesus's death and resurrection uh there are many many times when god's people um, are commanded to ask god for forgiveness every time that they sin and so this even goes back to leviticus and offerings and you know various forms of what would be seen today in some traditions as penance you have to do this to kind of work your sin off or as as an apology to god and most clearly there's got to be a sacrifice offered uh to, to restore restore right relationship with god um after Jesus's resurrection, there are zero commands in the New Testament to ask God's for forgiveness for those of us who are Christians. Again, if there, if you're not a believer, yes, there is a moment where you repent of your sin and come to Jesus. Um, if we sin against one another, yes, we still ask forgiveness of one another. But, but for those who are in Christ, there are no commands to ask God for forgiveness. Um, and that realization just just blew my mind because what i see in roman catholic brothers and sisters is very much a working off their sin for those of us in the more protestant or evangelical world even if we don't do kind of overt penance how many times do we still feel like we have to earn our way back into god's good graces whether at least internally if not externally Mm -hmm. um and then there's just so much conversation about ask god for forgiveness ask god for forgiveness um and when I, when I realized that we're not commanded to ask God for forgiveness for our continued sin, what it did is it made the cross and resurrection seem even greater in my mind. Um, and I think of the folks who kind of fearfully go to God and go, man, is this one too much for you? Did this one cross the line? There's no way that you could forgive this one again or this one because it's so big and how much fear and trepidation that puts in folks. And, and if we realize, no, 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 even that has already been forgiven, no matter how many times, no matter how big it was, it just makes Jesus's full and final sacrifice on the cross that much more glorious and that much more great. And it makes the gospel message just even more beautiful. Mm. That was an amazing answer and something that uh, I'm going to really wrestle with because you're right. I, I think that's exactly because I immediately I go to First John one nine if we confess our sin, but that's before we come to Christ. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Now that we're in Christ, yeah, and that does speak to the whole story of the gospel. Okay, so yeah, I want to I want to jump into the whole why uh, why should we judge one another and we don't get to go to heaven forever? So break those down for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and let me comment on John First John one nine for a sec. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, cause a lot of folks would say, no, 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 we are called to confess our sins mm-hmm. uh, to God, even after we're, uh, after we're forgiven, after we're in Christ. Um, and, and the answer is yes, we are called to confess, but that's different than asking God for forgiveness. Um, to your point, I very much think for Sean in that context is written to folks who think they are Christian I mean, folks like me, frankly, folks who think they're Christians, they're religious, but are not followers of Jesus yet. Oh. And so I think it is a call to, to the first repentance. Um, 
But even if we are called to confess, confession is saying, oh, God, literally God, I, I, I did do this again. I, I failed your holy standard, this kind of stuff. But there's a difference then between saying, will you please, please, please forgive me again for it versus what a lot of traditions actually carry out really beautifully after confession comes assurance, which is to say, I don't have to forgive you again. Hmm. You already have been forgiven of even that. Right. Um, so it, th- that, that distinction though, of who is this actually written to is, is really, really important. Where do we find ourselves in our, in the stories is part of what you're getting at by saying, yeah, that was written to folks who weren't believers. That's so good. And I think in the same way, the, 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 you know, maybe the most, uh, used Bible verse over the course of 2020 and 2021 with all of our division was, well, you can't judge me. And if you're a Christian, right. you know, we throw, we throw that, that line from Jesus's, uh, sermon on the Mount around, uh, even if we don't believe in Jesus, frankly, it's a real easy go-to of, you know, thou shalt not judge. And yet if we continue to read, uh, just a couple of verses later, Jesus says, well, take the, the plank out of your own eye so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. Uh, And so what he's saying is have integrity when you judge, you know, like realize that you're a sinner Hmm. and that you probably have some stuff in your own life as well. And, and, and realize that you've been redeemed and you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus also. But then after we take that plank or log out of our own eye, part of the reason we do that is so we can go and serve our brother or sister, serve the, the, the person who, who does have a speck in their eye and try to come alongside them and serve them. And so it's, it's again, it's one of those coffee mug verses like you mentioned, like it's easy to throw that around, but then if you read just a couple of verses later, no, we're still called to call brothers and sisters to God's standard of holiness and to walk with them as they uh, seek to attain it as we would hope that they would do the same for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul in his letters to the Corinthians specifically commands followers of Jesus to judge one another. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the folks that he commands us not to judge are those outside of the faith. And man, it feels like we've reversed those two commands in our culture today. Oh, absolutely. Especially over the last couple of years, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. man, we held people to things they haven't subscribed to exactly. ever in their lifetime, and we're condemning them for their lack of uh, morality about something they don't even believe in. Right. And yet internally, we just, you know, oh, well, yep. don't judge. Not allowed to touch anything. Yeah. So we, we don't judge the folks in the church. We do judge the folks outside the church, capital C church. And that's just right. the complete opposite. And again, the, the change there has to go back to Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and reign. That that why is it that we can both judge others and receive, quote unquote, judgment from others? It's the realization that none of us can live the perfect holy life that Jesus lived. Mm-hmm. That all of us are imperfect and all of us need others who are strong. Rusty, I trust that you're strong in some areas of faith in life that I'm not. I would need you if we were in community together to come alongside me and take specks out of my eye. And if I'm strong in any areas you're not, then part of the Christian community is I get to come alongside you and remove specks out of, out of your eye. Um, And so it's only the gospel that gives us the standard for judgment because mm-hmm. otherwise, well, I'm just going to judge you based on what I want to see happen. Wouldn't we all do that? Mm. Um, 
in Jesus's perfect life, we have the standard of holiness. And in his death and resurrection, we're freed to say, hey, I actually need you to judge me. Mm. And you need me to, to pursue holiness with you too. That's good. Um, so give us the, uh, uh, the part about not going to heaven for eternity. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and man, this is, this is what I hope gives us a hopeful view of all of eternity. And that's to say that um, Jesus is not about destroying Jesus is about rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't destroy us for our sin. Uh, as, as long as we are willing to, to come to him and seek the restoration that only he can offer, um, he's restoring us. And then he calls us to be his ministers of restoration, ministers of reconciliation, is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and in some veins, that means we're only trying to share the gospel and get people saved. But if we look at Jesus's current reign and our role in it, which is to to join Jesus in his prayer, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, um, then what we get to enact today is little glimpses of what Revelation actually talks about, which is not, man, finally one day we get to leave this hellhole and escape it and go to some you know cloud city in the sky, but rather God's going to bring heaven to earth. Um, and all of this will be reconciled and all of this will be made even better than it was in the garden of Eden. And so we get to take the, you know, maybe silly reading into it, but take the vacations we never got to take during this life. And then Venice won't be, you know, plummeting into the, into the sea then because <laughs> all of life will be perfect and, <laughs> and there'll be no pain and no crying. All these things are true, but, but most of all, we get to be with God on this earth, just like Adam and Eve were with God on this earth. And we get to enjoy the relationship in the restored creation that he's been pursuing ever since sin entered the world and brokenness followed it. Did you intentionally quote Empire Strikes Back and Cloud City? Maybe a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Because okay. that's mad props, and I, I have high respect for that. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> There's a hidden Ted Lasso quote in the book as well that uh, I was frankly surprised that Moody let by. Oh, so. okay. well, they haven't seen it. That's why. <laughs> uh, okay, so I... I love this book, and I'm telling everybody that's listening to this podcast, get a copy of it because it's so, so helpful. Um, A a couple of last things. The distinction between household of God instead of the house of the Lord, uh, help us kind of parse through that. Sure, yeah. Um, Very simply, houses are structures that have no meaning or worth uh, except for the memories that are created, except for the people that fill the house. And mm. um, w- we hear the term household of God. And in our kind of English language vernacular, a lot of times it gets just talked about as the house of God. And so churches get talked about as the house of God. So mm-hmm. come into the house of God and, and worship. And this is where the presence of God is. Um, and for the record, there, there was a, an era of history that that was true. Um, mm-hmm. like God has always had a dwelling place with his people on earth in, in Eden, which we just talked about a moment ago in the tabernacle. He says, my presence is going to primarily be in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's going to be the Holy of Holies. So there was a time in history when, when there was a physical primary household of God. Um, but again, this is some of the change that Jesus's death and resurrection makes 
is that he promised that he would send the spirit. And then again, to quote the apostle Paul, he says, you now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, and so where does God exist in the world today? It, God exists wherever his people are. Um, there's a common quote that says, you may be the only Jesus that people ever see. And there's something of that that's just echoing the the current era reality of God's presence not being confined to one building with a steeple or otherwise, um, and and especially not being confined to just one hour on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever. Um, we are God's temple, and so we are God's household. We are those who fill the the, the eventually the eternal temple, the, the the heavens and the earth that we just talked about a moment ago. Um, but we are the household of God, which is distinctly different than a physical location or time. Mm. Hey, Ben, let me ask you one last question here. You mentioned there's a different definition behind hashtag blessed. What should that be? Yeah, man. So blessed can mean anything and everything we want it to be today. If, if I want something, I get it. I go, hey, I'm blessed. Um, and there is a moment, just again, to avoid swinging the pendulum too far, like God loves to pour out blessings on his children. So, But to truly be blessed, as it's talked about in the Old Testament, as it's talked about in the life of Jesus and modeled by him, um, to be blessed is to receive something unique from God, but specifically to kind of be able to turn around and bless others with it. Um, to, to bless God, to, to give him uh, thanks and, and praise and to remember what Jesus' own half-brother said, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. And so we return the blessing to him or and or to, to, to be used for the benefit of, of other people. Um, that is what a truly blessed life is. That's awesome. Ben, the, the, the book is awesome. Uh, oh, the, the work is well done. And it's been fun having you on the podcast. You're a really sharp thinker, uh, especially, uh, you know, surprisingly being from Texas. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you're kind of breaking the stereotypes. I'm kidding. Well, we got to do born. something while we walk, you know, to the outhouses since we don't have indoor plumbing. So we got exactly, to think exactly. deeply about things. Yeah, yeah exactly. well, I'm just impressed you finally got electricity. Good for you. <laughs> exactly. Hey, brother, all the best to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing this great resource with us. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. And I hope to talk again sometime. Thanks, Rusty. Well, that was so helpful for all of us, I think. I want to thank Ben for being a guest on the show. And make sure you go and check out his book that's coming out. And make sure you get a copy of that. Uh, next week, we're going to be back with a special episode specifically for pastors and specifically for those who are pastors that are alone right now. And what I mean by that is not lonely, but you're the only pastor on staff. Uh, maybe that you're a church planner, maybe you've inherited a, an, a, an old or an aging church and you feel like, boy, it's just you. Well, Gary McIntosh has written a great resource that makes solo pastoring simple. And so we're going to talk to him and hear what he has to say. I want to invite you, if you would, just leave us a review of the podcast that really helps us get the word out. There's so many that are out there and we'd love to get this out so people can get the help they need and then share it with a friend. Uh, that is a huge compliment to us when you do that. So thanks so much for being a part of Leading Simple today. And we will talk to you next week. As always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. 
Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, our friends at Belay are offering a free copy of their resource, Four Costly Financial Mistakes for Churches, exclusively to our podcast listeners today. Belay's modern church staffing solutions have been helping busy church leaders delegate important financial details for over a decade. Their fractional U.S.-based contractors provide accounting and virtual assistant services to level up your church through the power of delegation. Just text RUSTY, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to claim this exclusive offer and get back to growing your church with Belay. That's RUSTY, R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123.